And now it's time for Madison's Mad Facts with your host, Madison Standish. Hey everybody, it's Madison. Welcome to another Madison on the Air bonus feature of Madison's Mad Facts, where we look at the way things were in real life back during these old-timey radio shows. This month, I got to step into the shoes of the Green Hornet. Spoilers ahead, go listen to the episode first. Okay, so in one scene, Cato and I try to use a phone, but the line has been cut, so he has to go find a public phone. This got me thinking about how phones have changed since these old-timey times. So for this Madison's Mad Facts, we're going to talk telephones. Engaging my line tonight is the voice of Miss Case, Britt Reed's stellar assistant, Sharon Grunwald. Hey, Sharon. Sup? Hey there, Madison. Or should I say Mr. Reed? You know, they are still forwarding me his mail. Under his name, I've already signed up for three credit cards and AAA's health insurance. Hey, you need to prepare for a rainy day. Okay, rather than a start-to-finish history lesson on the telephone, which would have us here for hours, I thought it'd be neat to hit on fun phone facts to give insight into telephones of the past. So, Sharon, tell us a few facts about the man who invented the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell. Well, the first fact would be Alexander Graham Bell didn't invent the telephone. I knew that. It was a trick question. There are many other pioneers credited with bringing the telephone to fruition. But Alexander Graham Bell altered and improved his version of the telephone and then became the first to patent it in 1875. He started working with the idea of transmitting sound waves over wires to try to help his wife, who was deaf. Sweet! Okay, I find the shape of telephones an interesting evolution. What was so important about the Model 102 telephone? Well, from the late 1800s through the 1940s, the most widely used type of phone was the candlestick phone. You can catch glimpses of it in period movies or even films of early Hollywood, like It's a Wonderful Life. The style features a mouthpiece, the transmitter. It's mounted on top of a stand that the caller would speak into, and a receiver, which was the earpiece, that was held to the ear separately during a call. But in the late 1920s, Western Electric began to manufacture the Model 102. It had a transmitter and receiver base that would either sit on a desk or hang on a wall. And with the newly developed handset that had both the speaking and listening aspect of the phone in one piece, the Model 102 is the original design of the telephone that was used from the 1930s right up until the first cordless phones of the 1980s, and the style that's often still used as landlines, especially in businesses today. What about old-timey switchboard operators? Oh, well, early telephones didn't have ways for callers to direct dial. There wasn't a number dial on the phone at all. Instead, the method consisted of a caller picking up their telephone receiver, which would signal an operator at the local telephone exchange that someone was requesting to make a call. The operator would plug in her rear cord, or the answering cord, and respond by asking, Number, please? <laughs> I think that voice was actually required to be a phone operator. At which time the caller would give the phone number they wished to reach. Now for a local call, the operator would then plug in the front cord, or the ringing cord, to the intended party's local jack and start the ringing cycle to the recipient's phone, waiting for them to answer. If it were a long-distance call, however, the operator would have to connect to another operator in a different telephone exchange. 
and depending on how far the caller was from the person he or she was trying to reach, several operators may be relayed in the process of reaching the location. In the 1920s, it took an average of 15 minutes to connect a long-distance phone call. No wonder long-distance calls were so expensive! (laughs) Yeah, true. Although the way phone companies cut costs were to hire women as switchboard operators, they were considered more courteous to customers than their male counterparts, but more importantly, they also could be paid a quarter of what men would get for doing the same job. This is my I'm-totally-not-surprised look. Yeah, well, you'll be happy to know that this led to many labor strikes throughout the decades, including one in 1919 at the New England Telephone Company. They shut down all the phones in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, Rhode Island, and Vermont for five days until the company gave in to the operator's demands. You go, girls! (laughs) Yeah. Well, switchboard operators were also retained by individual businesses. There weren't any direct dialing to a particular person's office, so the incoming caller would have to go through a switchboard operator to reach the employee's personal extension. So if early phones didn't have numbers for the caller to dial and relied totally on talking to a phone operator, when did we get phone dials with the numbers and stuff? One self-serving phone operator led to the invention of the telephone number dial and the rotary phone. Before the dials, you could only ask an operator to patch you through to the phone number you were trying to reach. In 1891, Almond Brown Stoger, a professional undertaker as well as an amateur inventor, noticed his once profitable funeral home business was suddenly dropping off. He then discovered that the local switchboard operator was the wife of his business competitor. Well, she would purposefully misdirect Mr. Stoger's calls and send his customers back to her husband instead. So Mr. Stoger set out to create a phone system that wouldn't require a human intermediary. That's some shady stuff. Since we're talking about old-timey phone dials, long before texting, they had letters on phones. What's up with those words used in phone numbers, like in our episode of Candy Matson, Yukon 28209? What does that Yukon mean? Well, the first two letters indicated the telephone exchange or the central office. So for Candy's Yukon, you'd be focusing on the Y and the U of the word Yukon. Even spelling Yukon with the first two letters capitalized and the rest of the word in lowercase. Well, then the dialer would pick the corresponding number to those letters on the telephone dial, which in this case is 9 and 8. And that's the exchange number, 98. Then the five numbers that followed were the unique phone number for that individual's phone. Today, we would just say 9828209. In more populous areas where more phone numbers were needed, the exchange would use three letters. Think of it as an early area code. Oh, and you might be interested to know there was a Madison exchange of M.A. I knew me and phones went way back. By the 1970s, the use of those exchanges had been phased out but the letters remained on the telephone dials to make phone numbers easier to remember, especially for business who would buy special numbers that spelled out words, like 1-800-PAINTER. Okay, what about party lines? Sounds like a good time, but... Ah, well, as a telephone customer, you're known as a subscriber. From the beginning of telephone, subscribers could pay an extra fee to upgrade to an individual phone line. But having a direct phone line to your home was pretty 
pretty expensive, especially in sparsely populated areas. So, starting back in the 1800s, it was common to be on a party line. Several subscribers would all be connected on one telephone loop. Well, during World War II, as the need for more phone lines grew, but rationing was in place, party lines were the best way to meet demand. The price was right, but there was no way to have private conversations. Plus, with only one household being able to use the phone at a time, it really wasn't convenient for urgent calls. And it could be a headache trying to get access in an unengaged line. Many cities tried to put limits on calls to five minutes each to curb the problem. It wasn't until as recently as the 1980s that technology had changed enough to finally end the era of party lines. Okay, last thing I want to talk about, which we do mention in our Green Hornet episode, the public or payphone. Ah, well, in the United States, payphones were first introduced as early as 1880. The phone was located in a building, and the caller would directly pay an attendant for use of the telephone. In 1889, coin pay telephones were created. They used a system where the caller would pay after completing the call. The first outdoor telephone booths were installed in 1905, and by 1925, 20 years later, There were 25,000 phone booths in New York City alone. Well, by then, the coin pay was designed to take payment before the call began. Payphones would accept your nickels, dimes, and quarters, each different coin triggering the phone internally to tally up the amount paid. But phone booths were expensive. By 1960, full-sized phone booths began being phased out in favor of the less expensive unenclosed telephone stands. And then, at the breakup of the Bell Monopoly during the early 1980s, independent phone companies began installing their own public phone stands. And although the need for pay phones has been reduced thanks to our modern mobile cell phones, at least 100,000 pay phones are still in operation in the U.S. today. Well, thank you so much, Sharon, for talking telephones with us. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. And thank you guys for listening to our little bonus feature of Madison's Mad Facts. And get ready for new episodes of Madison on the Air to premiere the first of every month. 